0: Of wealth, a student of science, and a master of other people's minds, devotes his life to righting wrongs, protecting the innocent, and punishing the guilty. Cranston is known to the underworld as the Shadow. Never seen, only heard, his true identity is known only to his constant friend and aide, Margot Lane. Today's story Death Stalks the Shadow. Welcome to
1: Nightlight. Thank you for joining us. Hope everyone's having a great week. Uh, We have another uh, new guest uh, with us uh, tonight. Uh, Martin Grahams is uh, going to be with us for the next couple hours. Um, I'm sure most of the listeners know that very recognizable introduction to the Shadow Radio show. Uh, You know, um, would be a good way to start our exploration of classic TV and radio shows. Um, like I said, Martin Grahams is our guest, and he is not letting us forget the shows that were the foundations of late night radio and TV. It, it's part of our history, you know, of like. Uh, you know, President Roosevelt's fireside chats. You know the War of the Worlds with Orson Welles, and of course uh, the Shadow. And our uh, loyal listeners in Barnsley and our special friend in Coventry may have had you know the same experiences with George VI. There's a big movie out uh, just a few years ago about uh or early English radio but um you know, you know this is the golden age of radio um before nightlight returned it to that status but uh you know we, what we do here on nightlight is um, what did, can we say it's it, it's an extension of the shadow so We'll explore that topic in just a minute. Um, Here's a little bit about Martin. Uh, He he is the author and co-author of more than 30 successfully published books including The Shadow, The Green Hornet, and The Twilight Zone. Martin has written over 500 magazine articles, is a research consultant for a publishing company, and is events coordinator for the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, an annual nonprofit film festival that benefits children with treatable cancer. Martin is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Rondo Award and the Ray Stanich Award. Um, he, You can uh, learn more about him by going to his website, martingrams.com uh,
2: So let's bring
1: on Martin. How are you, Martin?
2: Well, pl- uh, fine. Thank you for asking, and pleasure to be on the program tonight.
1: Uh, we, we are glad to have you. Um, yeah, you, know, you know, we, yeah, you know, we worked a little in the past and we actually you know, actually got to meet last year at the uh Rod Serling uh Twilight Zone conference in Binghamton, New York. You know, uh, you know, we'll be talking about that and, uh yeah, you know, later in the program. But yeah, when uh, you know we were talking uh you know, it was on on the saturday of the uh, conference uh, you know, like you know we were chatting in, in, you know in between um speakers and i was going through uh, your shadow book, and you, know, you, you had a number of other books there, but you know, I was really drawn to the shadow, and you know, I was you know, just flipping through it, and yeah, you know, that's just really a fascinating subject. It just and you know, Barbara and I kicked around some ideas. Oh, let's play the shadow. In, introduction for the uh, beginning of the show um and then later in the day you know, there, there were the actors uh who um put on a uh, like a radio performance of like Rod Serling's first uh radio uh uh play it you know, it was interesting to see how that was uh done uh, and um it, it just really o- opened me up, up to you know like the connection between those er- early days and what what we do now Yeah, uh, you know, the sh- Shadow came out like what almost 90 years ago. What What is it that drew you to write about The Shadow?
2: Well, well the radio program was a kindred spirit to me. I listened to the mm-hmm. program when I was a child, and it was what got me hooked on the old-time radio. Um, I thought the show was cool. It took until the third mm-hmm. episode that I realized he was invisible because – you know I wasn't actually comprehending <laughs> as a young kid what was going on and it was an, a crime caper he was partly a masked vigilante superhero i say masked because he was technically upside down i mean invisible in a sense so it wasn't like the same old routine where someone else is personally um you know in costume like you see in the movies and firing guns or mm-hmm. blazing like he is in the pulp And over the years, I realized there was very little written about the shadow. And after a while, I realized they were all conflicting with certain information. And I finally just decided I might as well do something and uh, spent about, I'd say, 10 years doing research. An example would be one one of the sponsors was Goodrich, and they are out of Akron, Ohio. So on the way back from a convention in Columbus, Ohio – I stopped at Akron at the Goodrich Archives, and they had a few files from the corporate office regarding the radio program. And that would be like, say, one out of 60 or 70 archives across the country that over a period of years, I eventually started putting together magazine articles, and then it branched out into a big book. And uh, the one thing I discovered was that radio back then was live. So unless there was a logistic reason, whether it be financial or legal, they never recorded the programs because it costs money, and business is all about money. So I'd say about 50% of the radio broadcasts, if not a little bit more, do not exist in recorded form, which means I had to track down the radio scripts, which means I had to track down the copyright holders and go through their archives on microfilm where they had all the radio scripts there. and then I found hard copies of first rendition, first drafts of the scripts, so I had to read them and get all the plot summaries. So you could say it was something <laughs> that I guess as a six-year-old, I never realized where it was going to take me, but uh, the completion of the adventure was publishing a 800-page book and documents all the details about the radio crime fighter, and the television attempts and the cliffhanger serial and other incarnations of the shadow, and then, of course, uh you know, that was just one of many books, and that's why I'm here tonight with you. But yeah, it got started when I was just a kid. And you never know, you know, if you expose old time radio or old black and white television shows to kids when they're six, seven, and eight years old, you have no idea where that could lead.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, interesting. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, for for something like this, you know, you're going to, um, you know, the Goodrich Tire archives in Akron, Ohio. But you know, I I, I was listening to a few episodes on YouTube, and you know, you know, there are a lot of like really positive comments left on YouTube, uh, and you know, there 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 are the uh, you know, Goodrich Tire uh, you know, commercials on there from. But like nineteen, what thirty-eight, thirty-nine. You know, in and, 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 you yeah know, that uh, time period. But yeah, you, know, you know, you're right, uh, Martin. That you, you don't know where the research is going to take you, and, and it just like, it, 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 picturing picturing go, going to you know, like the corporate offices at Goodrich. Just doesn't seem to be a logical place to uh, do something like this but uh, that's that's where it took you it's it is, uh interesting where these different paths can lead a researcher but um you know one of the things i i in in you know, really captivated me about your book while I was you know, going through. You know, I said, it, it, uh, you know, while one speaker wrapped up and another one was uh, setting up his, his or her speech, was that Orson Welles was the, the original voice of Lamont Cranston how did he you know, where did he come from to get that job cuz you know, he's a pretty young guy in
2: the late 30s correct um he was probably 22 maybe 23 at the time when he took on the assignment it really was to fund his new york stage plays he was part of Him and John Housman were putting together what they called Mercury Theater, and they would do innovative stage plays on Broadway and off-Broadway, and it was in New York. And sometimes the plays were big hits, critically acclaimed, huge box office, and then other times they were not so critically acclaimed in box office, and to offset the expenses, he would do radio. And he did radio as far back I at least I have been able to document around nineteen thirty four or thirty five. And then wow. the shadow came around the fall thirty eight and it was just a quick weekly uh, uh, money maker where he can come in, play the lead, make the advertising agencies happy, make the sponsors happy, um and then go back to the theater in time to do the next stage drama. And it helped pay the bills, and one could say he was robbing Peter to pay Paul or taking a part-time job just to make ends meet, but in many cases back then, it was the only way. He only did one year, and then he did some syndication discs, which is recording them in a studio in advance, and then they put them on disc and send them out to different areas of the country because the sponsor was Blue Coal, and their product would only go as far west as Chicago, as far north as New England, and as far south as Virginia. Nobody bought coal down in Virginia, in Florida, or any of those areas, southern states. So the discs for the syndicated ones that she did in a studio are all of them survived because they were pre-recorded. Of course, um, those were sent out various areas of the country so some areas of the country heard some broadcast other areas heard different broadcasts. it's a very fascinating history on how the broadcasting was done but orson Welles technically did the first year and then he decided to, to accidentally panic america and with a mark fake martian broadcast and the end result <laughs> was basically he's going to hollywood because he just got a contract and in came Bill Johnstone, who was the second actor to play the Shadow, who most people are familiar with as well, because he did a pretty good job, and majority of his broadcasts exist in recorded form. Okay, and yeah, uh, you know,
1: like you said, the be, uh, beginning of the uh, show, um, it. The, the the shadow which, uh, really was just a, a voice that was um heard by the uh bad guys you know the un- underworld uh type figures in the uh e- each ep- ep- episode um it, you know what was the shadow, um, it, it, like a, a supernatural type character, like we would have a little later on with, um, the, like the Superman TV show, and you, know, you get the you know, uh, Kryptonite is you know, his, his weakness. But you know, most of the time, you know, he, he's a, uh, able to defeat the bad guys on. On that episode, uh, you know, without them knowing about, you know, his, his secret weakness. It, 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 was there something like that in the sh- shadows' uh, history?
2: Um, not per se. I wouldn't say he had a kryptonite uh, a weakness. Um, he, as they defined in DC's Watchmen, which was brilliant. Um, the difference between a superhero and a mass vigilante would be that a superhero truly is super. They've got abnormal powers like Superman, Wonder Woman, and so on. Um, and then people like Batman and so on, they're just masked vigilantes. They just get into a costume and they have some small abilities, and that's the difference. Um, the Shadow was never really a superhero per se. He was uh he went to the orient he learned how to cloud men's minds so basically you walk into a room and you don't realize it but he just hypnotized you and you cannot see him and that was his basically only superpower was being invisible and then once in a while you'd have villains who would create monsters or let loose the dogs and of course you can't hypnotize them and there was always some sort of little um Every third or fourth episode, the villain found a way to actually go, oh, you know what? He is human. All you have to do is trap him or send out the dogs or something, and that was (laughs) what the procedure was. You could say he was a bit of a fraidy cat because he really just wanted – he just stayed – he was only good when he was uh, invisible. But what he did is he would play the role of a guilty conscience. One of the early shadows Mm -hmm. that I liked was that where cars were being exploded – throughout the city, and no one could figure out where and when the bombs are being planted. And about halfway through, or two-thirds of the way through, the shadow figures it out. It's like a mystery, as normal. And it turns out there's a madman in the sewers, and what they will do is move the manhole, plant the bomb on the bottom of the car, and put in, replace the mint manhole. And so he goes down, and he talks to the guy and Of course, the old man can't see him, and the old man's demented. And somewhere along the line, the shadow has convinced him that he's mad, and he's just as bad as the people who deserve the punishment. And the episode ends, the shadow escapes, and the old man blows himself up. And that's the end of the episode. So again, he's invisible, he can't be seen, he's just a guilty conscience. But the show was unique because they did not have one or two staff writers writing all the scripts. They had a variety, and so one was known for writing mysteries, another did horror, another did detective fare, so each episode was never the same thing, and you could hear six or seven episodes and realize it was not a cookie-cutter format per se, and I think that's what makes it um, amusing. You can't do it today. It looks lame when you have somebody invisible on the screen, among other things that they did on the show. And the dialogue's a bit hokey, and so on, but when one you know dismisses the hokiness of sorts with a dialogue and says, "Hey, okay, this is 1930s. I'm going to put myself in the 1930s 40s perspective, it's the old gangsters with, uh, with automatic shot, automatic guns and repeating rifles and grenades and and, and and kidnapping scientists because they know they're secret weapons and secret agents overseas and lots of fun like that. I've always had, if I had a pill, I would say, what would it be like if you were a kid in the 1930s or 40s? And how would you grow up with role models that they would have created through pop culture, whether it be the Lone Ranger, Green Hornet, or The Shadow? And so that's always been my pill and my enjoyment. Thankfully, with old-time radio, there are so many recordings and still being discovered to this day that there's always going to be recordings I've never heard. And probably 20 years down the line, there will still be recordings found in archives that I will be enjoying. And well, it's good for a long drive. And, you know That's what I enjoy. <laughs> that's kind of how the shadow works. Is he wasn't really a superhero. He was just a masked vigilante. But in this case, he wasn't even a masked vigilante. He did not really have to be in costume like that hawk nose and the hat and all you see on the art of the pulp magazine.
1: Yeah. It, 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 when we had our buddy Mark Deweiziac on a few weeks ago, you know, we you know, we got into the hokiness of uh Carl Kolschak and t- some of the monsters that you know, it looks like uh yeah, you could probably see the zipper going up the back of the uh monster's costume and uh yeah, you know, and the you know Carl's driving to you know where they found the body, and you know it gives the day of you know, it's, uh, you know right around Thanksgiving in Chicago, and uh, yeah, he's driving around his yellow Mustang with the hood down, and all the trees are in full bloom. Uh, okay, I've never been to Chicago, but I probably have a good feeling that. Uh, uh there aren't trees and uh bloom in uh around Thanksgiving time so it, it's <laughs> but it it's those little things like that yeah it, it, the little hokey thing that, that does it, it, but I don't know what you call it it it, it just it it does make thing uh, you know these shows endearing it's it, it, yeah you know, it's it's kind of low budget but you know at least you when know, we watch that uh you know the performers uh do the uh, rod Serling's first uh, radio, uh script you know they're uh j- just uh, uh using uh shoes to pound on the desk to make uh, you know, sound like you know, someone's running. It, 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 it's really not uh, big budget kind of uh, special effects that we're, we're so used to today.
2: Oh, just well, di- yeah, different and, medium. And they always they always say today's computer is going to be tomorrow's Atari special effects. The, the, the <laughs> visuals are not going to be as in tune. The defects will come out. Um, Same thing with the old movies and TV shows and radio shows. There will be a little bit of the things that we kind of have to temporarily put aside. A little kid would look at some of them and say, there's no color, or they'll look at it and say – oh, look, uh, the, that's an old car. How can they be driving that? Where's the? Why do they have to go to a pay phone? Why is this thing called a party launch? But uh, the reality is they're just not educated to understand, and it's an opportunity for all of us to kind of give them a nudge and explain to them what it is they're watching and why it was back then. And then after that, they're okay with it. And so, yeah, we see that a lot in those old films, but that's part of the fun too is the history. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and that's you know what I really wanted to focus on tonight is yeah, you know, uh, yeah. You know, your subjects a little bit of a departure from our usual subject material, but it's it's really not because you know we're you know Barbara and I really enjoy. Looking at history as well as preserving it. And, you know, in, in a little bit, you know, we'll, we'll be looking at your Twilight Zone book. But, yeah, uh, you know, j- j- just uh, ha- having time to go through your shadow book, there, there was just something of, uh, that really caught my eye about, you know, where. Uh, people like you know, he, heroes like Orson Welles are just you know, just getting their uh, start. Uh, the, then there's what A- Agnes Moorhead was involved in the sh- is that right? And then you, you get some of these people in in the uh, like first season of the Shadow. And within a couple years, they've moved on uh, to RKO, and they're all working on developing Citizen Kane. I, I, the, yeah, that's uh, just a, a, a fascinating couple years uh, in Orson Welles's life, and, and yeah, you're documenting that, and you're in your book and it, it, like what what was the you know, what's the inside story uh going from the uh you know getting the experience from the shadow the uh, war of the worlds and uh, uh citizen kane
2: um well Orson Welles pretty much did what everyone else did um radio was basically a way to make some extra money it was considered a throwaway medium that means um when they're done the drama the scripts would go into a box in the corner as everyone left the studio and at the end of the day most of them were thrown in the dumpster because it wasn't like they were going to reperform the same script again so and if they were they duplicate them again later it was always a different script so being a throwaway medium it was just quick pocket money it was nice uh job nice gig as they could get get it Um, in many cases they learn how to do dialect and how to speak proper for the radio Um, that way when they're delivering they can't speak too fast they cannot speak too slow they have to know timing and delivery they have to know how to sound like they're having a real conversation instead of he reads one line she reads her line he reads his line You have to have, like, the last syllable of this last sentence overlapping the first syllable of the next sentence. So it's like a real conversation. Um, It's it's a different form of acting, but it's a good stepping stone for doing Broadway. And, of course, everybody who did New York stage and radio, their goal was to go to Hollywood. So Wells never anticipated a panic broadcast when he did War of the Worlds, though years later he would brag and his stories would change here and there when he'd do his – you know, interviews But he never predicted it But it did lure a sponsor for the program um, It did lure him To go to Hollywood with a contract From RKO And of course he told all his friends Agnes Moorhead being one of them And you know, Everett Sloan and Joseph Cotton And all them doing roles on Mercury Theater Radio broadcast uh, And on the stage And said, hey, I've got a job I'm going Hollywood And everyone wanted to go to Hollywood That was always like the end game so he took his friends and said, I'm going to Hollywood. Who wants to be in it? I'm going to make a movie and the studio is going to pay for it. And that's what happened. And so everyone from Agnes Moorhead and Everett Sloan said, What have we got to lose? We'll go to, new, go to California. If it doesn't work out well, you get on a plane or train and you go back to California. You go back to New York and you're back where you started. It doesn't hurt. And so that's why they all went to uh, California, is just basically go make a movie. And some of them, like Agnes Moorhead, stayed in California. Okay.
1: Cool. And the what the 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 shadow radio uh, show began what like 1939, and it was actually on for a very long time. Uh, What was the longevity of that show? It's like you're doing research. (laughs) at the you know, Goodrich Archives uh, you know, enough to create this 800-page book. I, I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, there must have been a, a lot of material you found over a uh, about the
2: very long time it was on the air. Correct. Yeah. Um, I've always said you spend more time researching. Typing is pretty quick. Um, I've been known to type a book in less than a month, but I consider it data entry. And once you're done researching, you just pile your information chronological and how you're going to put it into the manuscript. The longest, re- pr- longest time it took actually was to read something like 900 radio scripts because, like I mentioned, half of them do not exist in recorded form. Um, there was a point where Charles Michelson, who was doing the recording, He would syndicate them in areas across the country where blue coal did not reach, and the end result was he would have different sponsors in those areas. So somewhere around 1944, 45 he made a business decision and said, well, why do we have to keep recording them? We've got more than 200 of these in stock. Um, I think that's plenty. And so for the majority of them, they stop around 44 and 45. And then they're just sporadic after that um, for whatever rare reasons they were recorded. And that was why we have so many missing. So I had to spend plenty of time reading all the scripts. And that's where I would put in a plot summary. And maybe I would dedicate an entire eight-hour day, eight, ten-hour day here at the house and read a bunch of scripts and do plot summaries. But when you're talking 900-some radio scripts, that can be a good three, four-month challenge. Um oh, also wow. becomes – it's almost like binge-watching or binge-listening. Somewhere you have to clear your head, go take a walk, do something else. So it's never anything that can be done straight from beginning to end without going crazy. Um, th- with about 10 years' worth of research, what I did is I put it all into a book. It just piled up. But the main important part was even though three episodes fit on a page – Um, When you put plot summaries for lost episodes, fans of the program are very appreciative that they can actually at least enjoy the adventures that they could not enjoy otherwise. So it was kind of essential. And when you talk 900 scripts, there's about 300 pages out of an 800 just on the plot summaries alone. And then there's photographs and all the other stuff. So it just piles up. There's been times I've actually tried to remind myself not to write thick books. But it's just a matter I'd rather have a book I can pull off and there's everything I want under one cover versus holding back. And I know one guy who was a fan of the shadow and had written some articles and not much of anything else once criticized um anyone who wrote books and said they should never put give away everything. You know, you know there should always be a historian who knows more than what's all in the books and Sometimes the minutiae and details is just a waste of space and just causes book prices to go up. And I get his point, but my opinion is you, know, you don't have to read the footnotes. You don't have to read all the plot summaries. But in many cases, what people are looking for in the books is they'd rather get an 800-page book that documents the series and know they can turn to it at any time. And for the most of it, other mm-hmm. than the, the plot summaries for the episodes, they can read it from the first page to the last. So, but yep. you know, if the book, if they're not a fan of The Shadow or they never enjoyed the radio show, they don't have to read the book either. There's other books, but for me, it's a niche crowd and it's a hobby per se. So, it gives people, you know, I, it's a sense of accomplishment knowing that I preserve something that's not existing out there, such as plot summaries for recordings and the history aspect. If I could find some old articles in the 30s or 40s, where Orson Welles was talking about his role and the participation in The Shadow, i reprint that. It's a nice write-up, but I always feel I'm preserving something and leaving my mark a contribution to preserving the arts in some way, and that's basically the reason I do the books.
1: Yeah, uh, we applaud your efforts. Uh, That's what Barbara and I, do want to get out there to the audiences? You know, and I think we've done that on many shows, and you know, we'll continue doing that as we get closer and uh, into starting our second year together. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it, so another one of your. Uh, books is you, you have one on the, the uh, late '50s TV show Alfred Hitchcock presents, and you, you know, Hitchcock is venturing into this new medium at the height of his you know, cr- creative powers in movies. You know he, he's. Uh, uh, He he was making a – in in the middle of a string of making a string of uh, movies that revolutionized uh, the suspense horror genre with uh, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, and Hitchcock's doing this uh, TV show. Uh, Where did he – yeah, uh, how, how did he get from the movies to doing these TV shows, uh, other than you know, he was getting paid?
2: Well, but how, well, how, how did he get he lured was, into He was actually pretty much a director per se from the very beginning. He wrote a lot of scripts in England. Then he came to America and did directed movies, and he discovered the Hollywood mm-hmm. studio system. It was around 1954 or 55 that Lou Wasserman, who was in charge of uh, Universal Studios at the time, approached him and said, look, television is pretty much coming into being now. It would be pretty cool if you had your own show and you hosted it. It would build up a little bit of prestige, kind of make you a a household name. He said, because right now you're just known as a director, and this would make you not only famous, it would boost box office potential and he was the only person that alfred hitchcock listened to when it came to finances so hitchcock formed shamley productions which was a production company to make uh, tv shows and shamley was the name of his estate over in england and he basically with his production company hired the right people involved and they put together the series under his oversight briefly he He insisted it had to be adapted from short stories that were already published, so therefore they'd be somewhat successful than just coming up with an original idea and hoping it would work. And then he directed two or three each year, and the rest he never directed, but he hosted them, and he absolutely loved doing the show, mainly except for the directing few episodes. He just came in and would do four or five opening and closing narrations, then come back a month later and do another four or five. It was a quick one-day thing. And in the meantime, he made his movies. And Lou Osterman was correct that over a year or two of the show, and it did not take long, people started wanting to go see the movies directed by Hitchcock, who they see every week on TV. And that was when he became an overnight sensation, not just any old director who was there in Hollywood just doing directing, and he did pretty good with the show and even used his TV crew to make a movie eventually in 1960 called Psycho, so it was on a low-budget sense, but he did very, very good financially from that, and I think that set him up for life and a lifetime contract with Universal Studios where all his movies after that would uh, come out through Universal. So it was kind of like he got the – keys to the kingdom and instead of disliking the Hollywood studio system he kind of owned a piece of it uh
1: yeah that's interesting because i did i didn't realize that um, um yeah you know, for psycho uh he he, he was using a uh, uh, the t v like a uh, you know more of a TV crew to film you know w- what would be uh you know probably the grandfather of all slasher movies but uh you know it, you know 'cause he you know the f- few mo- oh, c- quite a few movies prior to psycho like uh, they, they were all colorized and you know, psycho is just yeah, now that you mention it, 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 it does have you know, more you know, black and white 1950s TV feel to it. As as, oh, yeah. Uh, that, that was something um, interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Historically, looking back, the movie he did before that was uh, North by Northwest, which was a, a three million dollar Vista Vision full color adventure film with Cary Grant. And uh, Psycho was inspired because he had seen a couple of these movies like I Was a Teenage Frankenstein and so on that were making huge money. But then he realized it wasn't the money was huge because the budgets were low, and he decided, well, why can't I use my own TV crew this summer between seasons and create a movie? And he did and then decided I'm going to do something, some things different, going to kill off the leading lady one-third of the way film, through. I'm going to have her killed while she's in the shower. It's more of what they call a psychological thriller, which is more like a mystery with a little bit of a um, bloody sense per se. And this is basically someone who was psychotic and was under the radar, and people didn't catch on to that. And uh, basically he made a ton of money, and the film did extremely, extremely well. Critics hated him, but then again he kind of – neglected the critics for that film because they like to give away endings, and he said, no, 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 you can't do that, and so on. Um, but no, he did very, very good with it, but most people forget before and after he's doing these massive, full-color, $3 million productions, and then he's putting together a movie that costs something like fifty, sixty thousand $60,000. And most people are probably going, what the heck is this? But he basically scared the pants out of people, and that was what he wanted to do. And he, I guess you could say, he was laughing all the way to the bank.
1: Okay, and you know, Martin, what do you think is the legacy of the the Alfred Hitchcock Presents
2: show? Oh, the television show is still uh, today, it's still being sold on DVD, still being aired on TV me tv antenna tv is airing them um i think even cozy tv might be now um just in the reruns the studio is still making money off it um it, it's a po- it's a popular show too because people who've watched it realize you don't have to have hearties there are these cute little mystery stories with a twist ending you know some guy tries to kill the wife and then discovers at the end that there's a twist surprise to it or a uh, You know, a practical joke goes afoul, and they're little grisly stories, but they were quite fun, and they were above average. And so, um, yeah, they still hold up to this day, just like Twilight Zone and many other programs. um, They're still just as popular. Uh, They may not have as many fan clubs or merchandise, but I would say Alfred Hitchcock Presents is still just as popular. In fact, I think the last three years when it was called Alfred Hitchcock Hour and it extended to an hour in length, um, that's getting ready to come out commercially on DVD, I think, this Christmas, which basically shows you that even up to this point, where DVD sales are diminishing over time because people are doing more streaming, um, they're still willing to put it out because they know there's a market for it. Yeah, and you
1: know, speaking of, uh, you know, the Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, introducing the topic of the show uh you know we have to get a little bit into you know one of your passions as well as mine I know uh you know Barbara's a big Twilight zone fan as well and you know we and you know, we've had you know I saw you know Mark Deweziak and, and uh, Nick Parisi uh, as guests and you know, Nick was on uh you know just a couple of days before his um Dimensions of Imagination book uh came out. But you know, as you know, we get into you know, like the nineteen fifty nine time period, you know, H- Hitchcock and Rod Serling or, uh, yeah, yeah, become the faces of these, uh, you know, what, what's going to become just classic TV series, and you know, yeah, they're doing these introductions. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about any of the similarities or contrasts that the uh, Hitchcock and Rod took in introducing the episode for that evening?
2: Um, Yeah, it was kind of a simple hosting chore, which I always believed was a carryover from the old radio shows where you had a radio host, whether it be an old witch, Nancy of Salem, which was for The Witch's Tale, or The Old Man in the Hermit's Cave, Um, I always believe that it was basically they just needed a host to open and close the broadcast. Um, For Rod Serling, the narration in the beginning and then, of course, his on-screen intros was really just to introduce this scenario. Sometimes he gave the explanation to what you just saw and what you will continue to see for the rest of the broadcast. Other times, he would just introduce the name of the person, where they're located, kind of creating what they would do in stage work, which was the name of the character, the situation, um, location, and the date, if it's in the far future or in the past. And Hitchcock, on the other hand, did a different type of narration. He liked to make fun of the sponsors. So they had a nice, witty man named James Allardyce, and he would sit there and write up these things at the last minute. He worked best at the last minute, so they panicked. But then, sure enough, the morning of, and Hitchcock never questioned a single word, went in and just did them. And literally, just he read them, he got up, he did it. Droll British humor. Um, sponsors were a little concerned at first because he's making fun of the sponsors. But then when the product started selling off the shelves, that became a big deal, and then they didn't care because they realized what he was doing. Um, he credited that to like an old car salesman who on TV would joke about the car and say, Oh, the tires won't puncture because they're filled with cement. And, uh, you know, it's a real honey, it's dripping <laughs> oil. And uh, he always said that was the mechanic who sold more cars. And in reality, it was not taken very well in other countries. So Hitchcock, believe it or not, for at least a few seasons in the early years, recorded four different openings. He could speak French and German. So he'd do one in England, making fun of Americans instead of the products, and then he would do it again in French and then again in Germany, so that when the show aired in those countries, there'd be a different opening and closing. And uh, that was basically Hitchcock's uh, rendition, but a lot of programs still to this day have their own narration to introduce anthology series.
1: Yeah, and, and you yeah. H- H- Hitchcock and Rods ha- had those very distinctive voices. Well, uh, and you know, uh, we you know we could also include or- Orson Welles uh, uh, too it, it, in this. But all you know, all 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 of them had that just unique voice that. You knew who they were, and you you still know who they are
2: today. Oh, yes. Orson Welles knew how to do delivery. That I will give. He could give the right pauses and mannerisms, and I think every host has their own mannerisms, and those go over very well with the audience. Um, Ironically, Hitchcock – I mean, sorry, uh, Orson Welles, at brief time, wanted sorry um, Rod Serling for a brief time wanted Orson Welles to do the opening and narrations, but then Welles declined, and mm-hmm. then he tried to get Westbrook Van Voorhees who did the first unaired pilot, and then that was too expensive. And Serling finally said, "I'll keep the budget down. I'll do it." And then beginning the third, second, or for the second season, he would start appearing on the screen. So a lot of times they did it out of necessity and not just out of. Uh, um what was became now a uh, primal characteristic of the program.
1: It, and you, you know Martin um, I do have your uh Twilight Zone book and it's the Twilight Zone unlocking the door to a television classic um you have a forward by George Clayton Johnson. Uh, who, who is he, and how did you get the forward? Get him to do the forward?
2: Oh, well, uh, George Clayton Johnson was a fantasy science fiction writer. He was part of a group that used to come up with different stories and write stories in California. They'd have meetings once every two or three weeks, and it was a little club, in-group. He wrote scripts. He got his start on Twilight Zone, so it seemed fitting for him to write a forward. And I did not approach him originally. I was talking to him about the book, and that I was putting together a book on the show, and then he said, oh, I'd love to write a foreword. I've always come up with this great idea where I could write a a letter to Rod Serling, who's up there in heaven, and just tell him, hey, Rod, I know you're reading this, and this is what's the, the great stuff that's come along since then. Thank you very much. And he then China kept coming up with this another bizarre idea and another bizarre idea. Then he went back to the first idea and then I just realized eventually he wanted to write the forward. So I said, Yeah, yeah, I'll give you a spot. And he did. And very nice guy. But he wrote the forward because he was involved with it. Sometimes forwards are nice just to get somebody's name on the cover. You know, like let's say you write a book about a horror show. Stephen King could rave that it's one of the best horror shows ever done on TV. But to get him right. to write a forward, he knows it just means his name's on the cover, it's going to sell additional books. For me, George Clayton Johnson's name is not Stephen King, but it was just one of those tributes he wanted to give to Rod, and I thought this would be a perfect opportunity, and why not? So it, that's how that entered, uh, forward came out. So that very few books that I've done have a forward for him, but that one did just because it was more of a gift to George, so he, George could give a gift to Rod Serling.
1: It. Yeah, this is – as we talk about uh, The Twilight Zone, it's the greatest TV show ever, and I I, I don't think there's anything that will ever be created that uh, would rival The Twilight Zone, but – you know, you know, in your book, you do have um, information in there about some of the bloopers, and you know, one of your presentations <laughs> at the conference last year uh, did, did cover some of the bloopers. Uh, uh, yeah, that was interesting. You know, maybe. It's, Spend a little bit of time just to, to talking About you know, uh, okay so, uh, You know we've already looked at some of The uh, What do you say corniness Of uh, Some of these uh, Early shows but yeah you know, Okay we're all we're all like That you know Barbara and I are uh, Goofy at times but yeah, you know, There's something Yeah you know, Far more respectable but yeah, you know, there are some of those like uh, you know little uh, mistakes that happen or you know repetition of uh, you know like the uh, same posters. Can, can, can you tell us about you know those little things to look for in s- some of these episodes that uh, show that like the the same
2: sets were used? Oh yeah, it's standard of television production. Back then, people uh, watched the program once a week, and were not meant to be watched like they are today, where you can pop a DVD in and watch 10 episodes back-to-back. So recycling sets, props, uh, the same posters and paintings hanging on the wall in the back background. background. Um, that A lot of that stuff was filmed at movie studios, and so they would rent them or borrow them from the prop department. And in the long run, a lot of that now we can sit back and watch, sort of like Robbie the Robot. And You needed a robot, you go to MGM, you pay them. And so Robbie the Robot shows up on an episode of Adam's Family and an episode of The Thin Man and two episodes of Twilight Zone and all those other programs that were basically produced out of MGM Studios. So for Twilight Zone, when I wrote the book on the history of it, I thought it would be nice to go through rather than critis, critical analysis, which is what a lot of people seem to do in their books, which is all fine. But I didn't. I wanted to avoid that. Um, what I did is I went through all the details, as you mentioned, the bloopers, the trivia, the props that are recycled and reused so that progressively people can go, oh. Yeah, that is the same prop. I'll be darned. Oh, that's the same Beethoven music notes painting hanging on the back of the on the wall in the background in three episodes of the first season. And uh, you know, certain props we like to play. You know, one looks like a little white horse, and it shows up I think once or twice in the second season and then a couple times in the third season. So we have a game called Find the Horse because we're all determined to say it's going to show up in another episode. I'm pretty certain it won't by this point, but. Um, that was that slideshow presentation I did last year. Thankfully, I had that on the Dropbox, and that was from another pres another convention. And I they were able to call that up, and so I filled in an hour for them, uh, you know, simply just by going through and winging it. But uh, there was a lot of inside trivia and fun, and I figured the audience had seen Twilight Zone enough that they would have found that more fun than just another recap of the history. And that's kind of what my book does. So. Even if they've seen the episodes two or three times, even the best of episodes, the book gives them reason to actually go back and watch it again. Or if they're, say, Mm -hmm. there's a marathon on Sci-Fi Channel or whatever, um, they could pull the book out during the commercials, do a quick read-up, and go, oh there's going to be a much the shadow of the boom mic hanging from the ceiling up above and coming up. Or, <laughs> oh, so-and-so does this. And then it reappears by accident. And it's not even a, a book about bloopers. It's all the behind the scenes makings, um, you know, mm-hmm. how this special effect was done and so on. And it works. And it comes down to basically the book that people, I guess they always wish there was. And it's not about Rod Serling. It's about the twilight zone, but, it gives them a complete date breakdown. Why they did six episodes on videotape versus film. Um, where they were filming some of the desert scenes. It actually was in Death Valley in one, and then they went back and filmed. It, started doing them up in Lone Pine for the deserts and so on. So it gives them an idea of how television production was made, based on you know mm-hmm. progressively as you read a book. You know what an insert shot is. You know, like a close-up, uh, cl- the camera guy looks at his wrist, and then all of a sudden you see a close-up of the wristwatch, so you know what time it is. And then it cuts back to the guy where he puts his hand down. Well, that's actually called an insert shot. In other words, they insert it. So while they're filming, he'll look up, at the, he'll lift up his arm and look at the watch, and then after about five, six, seven seconds, he'd look at, he'd lower it down and continue acting. And then during lunch break, they'd have a stand-in or two, and they say, for example, one man and one woman, it was generally the routine. The man might put the wristwatch on his wrist, and they'd film a close-up shot of the wrist with the uh, watch. So it's never the same actor that has a wristwatch, but that's what the – then they do what they call the insert shot, and they'd insert it into there. So the actor doesn't have to stand around doing the silly little shot where they might have to get the camera and the lighting and the reflection off the glass done right. Um, so th- as they read the book, they get a detail how television in general was produced back in the 1950s and 60s, and it, it worked out well. I think a lot of people now look at television a little bit different because they know how it's being made, and in some t- cases, production values or story strategy, they know they can predict what's coming up. And a funny example: my wife likes uh, uh, cars; she's a tomboy. And Me T V plays Hawaii 50. And in the closing credits, mm-hmm. they always acknowledge Ford Motors, which of course is all police cars and the detective cars. And then whenever there's a car chase and the bad guys are trying to flee, my wife will go, That car is gonna go over the cliff and go explode. I said, How do you know? She goes, It's not a Ford. And sure enough, that villain's car will go over the cliff like, you know, two minutes later in the car chase And explode and break up because Ford was the sponsor, so they don't want their cars going up and getting destroyed. And uh, I, it's like I said, you just once you know how television's production kicks in, you kind of know what's coming up next.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and yeah, I think that's one of the, you know, uh, points of the first hour of the show is you know we're just getting a lot of these uh behind the scenes type of uh stories that uh i you know th- that that was how things were done at that time you know, the uh, it is to, so, sometimes you know it's just done uh you know, because of the Low budget, you know, just radio. You know, just uh, the audience doesn't. Uh, you know, the listeners don't need to see what props are being used. But you know, it, it, there's yeah you know, little gimmicks to make you know this certain noises. But you know, you're giving us that that you know f- filling in a, a lot of what we don't normally think about in the production of a show and it, yeah that's one of the things i really enjoy about your your twilight zone uh and yeah you also uh oh uh, like for example in uh, uh Third from the Sun on uh, you know, pages 222 uh, or 226, uh, it, you, know, you have a little trivia question there about um, write, um, the same props appear in the opening scenes in the background of the control room in the next Twilight Zone episode. I shot an arrow into the air inside the wrecked spaceship, and people are like all over in the laboratory in in his image. And uh, the initial glimpse of the flying saucer in this episode was a matte painting left over from the Forbidden Planet props at MGM. So, so yeah, you know, there's like. Uh, you know probably a lot of people just don't aren't watching a lot of these you know like binge watching uh this uh chronological series and you know they may miss little facts like that but there's you know you're talking about like you know for two episodes in a row there's almost like the same you know, the same uh sets are being used and then Throw in Forbidden Planet, and you know, what, what Forbidden Planet has, Robbie the Robot, and ha- how many other, you know, Lost in Space, and you know, a couple Twilight Zone episodes. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it, it, you know, these reoccurring uh, themes is just uh, it's just one of the fun aspects of ha- having you as a guest and learning. Uh, it, you know what, what was really going on, it, it's you know, just interesting. Where uh, you take a color movie, you know, big, big uh, and you know, Forbidden Planet was uh, very influential sci-fi movie, and then you know, it's praised in uh, you know the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But yeah, you know, it's also showing up in um, uh, in the Twilight Zone
2: correct yeah and that's part of the fun of watch, rewatching the episodes again for those who are big fans of the series so um you know some shows like Twilight Zone are timeless and people will watch them again and again over the years um some get so fanatical they want to know every aspect and they want to digest and eat up all that mm. tidbits of material and i to me it's fun if someone can bring one up i did not know um but it's nice also that people can discover how the episodes were made, how this, what the original twist mm. ending was supposed to be before it was revised because of production, all the little fun stuff there that you know it's 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 good for further deeper study. I always say uh um, there's usually can be two books on particular t v shows or radio shows, one would be critical analysis, and that's just somebody who watches them and then writes up an opinion. And for basically spawning debate. And then the other would be uh, the history of and depends on how detailed they want to get into it. And that's tracking down all the cast and crew, finding interviews of cast and crew from before that who, you know, are no longer with us. So we can get more detail about how this special effect was made and how that scene was done. An interesting one, my uh, my um, father-in-law, the episode you mentioned, Third from the Sun, is the one where the whole time you think it takes place on Earth, but there's always these little tiny differences that you don't realize. So it was the, the trick for the producers was how do you make an episode that you would never think it's on an alien planet, so you cannot give the dead giveaway, but and when it's all over, you go, oh, yeah, you know what? I don't think that was Earth, so they had to do it just right, and… The car, actually, you never see wheels spinning, and you kind of hear jet engines as it's moving, and the camera was tilted. I knew it, well, the car was something odd, so my father-in-law looked at it, and he said it's modified. looks like a George Barris, and I said, okay, well, that's a start. Then I found George Barris' website, sent him a YouTube link through the uh, uh, email, and said, take a look. Let me know if this is your car. Someone said it might be. And uh, he responded back personally by email and said, I'll be darned. They used one of my cars off the set, and he said it must have been filmed at MGM, which it was. He goes, that's called the Blue Danube, and I wrote that – I did that car for the – as like a 10 years into the future car, he said, for the movie The Time Machine. And he goes, that must have been 1960 because I got my cars back when they Mm. were done filming. turns out they just snuck on the lot, grabbed the car, and used it without his permission, and he didn't even know until now. But uh, it was one of those scenarios that, ah, there's a little trivia. It's one of the cars that was from a time machine. So like I said, there's always going to be little snippets here and there. But that's part of it. For me as a researcher, historian, that's fun digging those kind of trivia and tidbits up. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know about for the people who enjoy reading them. It's just, oh, that's an interesting little story. If they thought listening to this was kind of interesting and amusing, imagine, you know, 800-page book about the subject. Well, it
1: it, it is yeah, j- just uh, chock full of, you know, just all kinds of, uh, you know, like the uh, production costs, you know, just like how, how the show is made. And, you know, you, you don't spare a- any details about all the actors, actresses, uh, costs, whereas film it, – it's, you know uh, – you document the history of the series uh very masterfully. And uh uh you know, since you know we have approaching uh fifty minutes left in the show. Um you know, Martin said he'd be interested in doing a CD giveaway. And we're going to have to come up with a. Uh, uh, you know, Martin, do you want to explain the, the gift? And I think we're going to have, uh, you know, someone who wants to call in. You know, like the first person with the correct answer who calls in is going to win uh, one of Martin's CDs. Uh, do, Martin, can, can you explain? the prize you're offering?
2: Sure. Um, The CD is an audio CD. So it's uh, old old radio shows. And what makes this CD unique, are these are recordings that were not available in collector hands. Um, They're not out there. You really can't go to YouTube and find them um, because they were found in archives as I did research over the last 20 years um, from different places. And They usually, old radio shows come from 16-inch electrical transcription discs, and those discs are not easy to find. They're very fragile, Um, and this particular CD has some recordings that we came across at various archives from writers, directors, family relatives of the old shows. Um, One of them is the February 1940 audition recording, of voice tests for Superman before the Superman radio show premiered they had to do voice tests with different actors to play the role so we decided uh, we found the recording and we thought that's pretty cool we got to get it transferred. and then there's a uh, Judy Canova show which is a Christmas broadcast from 1949 and William Boyd plays Hopalong Cassidy on there which is kind of a big plus There's a lost episode of The Avenger from 1941, which was a pulp hero crime fighter. And then uh, the, the disc opens up with half an episode of The Shadow from September 1941. And the only reason there's a half recording is because no recording fits complete on a disc. You have to have two discs. Part one's on one side, part two's on another. And they never had them on the very same disc. They were always two separate discs. Because during the broadcast live, Um, they'd have the needle down, sort of like recording and putting it onto a record, but they don't want to miss a few seconds in the middle of the broadcast flipping the disc over and putting it on the second side of the same disc. So they'd lift the needle up just as they're letting the needle down on the other recorder. So that's why there would always be two discs. Anyway, this one's an episode of The Shadow, as we were talking about The Shadow, but it's half an episode because the other disc is not known to exist. And uh, for us collectors and fans, Sometimes half an episode is better than no episode. So anyway, it's a CD, and it's got these four recordings. It's uh, more than an hour in length. Um, The audition, voice auditions for Superman is pretty cool. Um, And uh, we had decided that besides the one, you know, first person to call, we can also make them available on my website if they want to visit on the website and then just email me through the website. Just say you heard it on the program and here's your mailing address and I'll pop a CD in the mail for you. Or if they want to listen to them online, I can send them a special link and they can click a button and listen to it. But uh, they can go to my website. We'll give my website later. But that's what the CD is. But we can give one away free for anyone who wants to call in and answer a question.
1: Okay. Uh, Do you have a uh, trivia question that's you would like to ask and yeah, you know, about uh what you know, just say the Twilight Zone, have someone uh call in, you know, the number is seven seven three eight nine seven six one one four. It uh Martin, do you have a qu- question you'd like to ask?
2: Uh yeah, we can give an easy we'll give a fairly easy trivia question. Um, the Twilight okay. Zone episode called Living Doll had the killer doll called Talkie Tina. Um, Telly Savalas was on the episode. You know, the girls, the doll would go, my name is Talkie Tina, and I'm going to kill you. And it was a cute thing. Um, the trivia count contest is who did the voice of Talkie Tina?
1: There we go. Uh, uh, that one stumped me. Forward, you have um, an answer.
3: No, I was I I was just about to cheat and Google it to tell you the truth. Yeah. don't do
1: that. Yeah, yeah, I did want you to uh, get sh- sh- shout it out, but I just wonder if you if you knew that one. I I I I, I don't. Uh, you know, ho- hopefully so- so- someone could. Uh, you'll know, want to call in and take a shot at it. I mean, one of the, uh, you know, the number is, again, is seven seven three eight nine seven six one one four. So 6114 um, So, and, you know, uh, Barbara says, stand by the phones. Hopefully someone will... Um, you know, want to call in? You know, I'm sure there's some people googling now too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, you know, Martin, yeah, you know, this year is the, the 60th anniversary of the inaugural season of the Twilight Zone, and you know probably all of us are. Uh, we're going to be up up at Binghamton in uh, was early October for uh, this conference. Uh, you're going to be presenting uh, there. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, th- this uh, TZ at 60 conference?
2: Oh, yes. It is held in Rod Serling's hometown of Binghamton, New York. Um, It's a nice little small town. Uh, He always said everyone has to have a hometown, and mine is Binghamton. Um, It's at a hotel. You don't have to stay at the hotel if you're just going to drive over for a day. Um, Worth going there, definitely. They screen some rare films. They're going to have some guest speakers talking. Um, Some of them are historians and authors, and I think probably almost, every historian or author of the twilight zone will be there um, probably signing their books. I know I will be there with my book. Um, There will be a whole bunch of little trivia contests and all this stuff there for the twilight and a lot of fun things. And I remember last year they screened a movie Rod Serling wrote at the uh, movie theater right across the street, which was really cool. But uh, one aspect some people do, some people don't. It depends on how diehard of a Twilight Zone buff you are. Um, you can actually browse through Binghamton. You could practically walk through from one end to the other within you know, 10, 20 minutes. It's a very small town. But you can actually see a lot of the landmarks that during first season episodes of the Twilight Zone were made referenced or used as, as big time, like the carousel and the pavilion from mm-hmm. – um, uh walking distance. You can see Boskov's, which was where the thimble was with the mannequins and the after hours. And you can see the train station where mirror image was held. Rod Serling's home house, own house where he grew up as a boy is there and so on. So you could basically, besides the events, you can wander through, take pictures and, you know, this is this is where this was inspired for this episode and so on. And it's really cool to see and do. So it's a it's an event. It's big because it's the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty certain it's on the exact date of the premiere, too. It's like literally dead-on perfect uh, scheduling on the calendars. So if anyone wants to hobnob or meet all the historians, authors, and so on, um, I recommend they go check it out. It's called TZ at 60, and it's up in Binghamton, New York, and they can do a Google Um, I have a blog, and it'll be up on the blog in the next week or two. I know there's a poster promoting it and then some details and so on, so they can go check it out, and uh, they'll get a kick out of it. It really is a lot of fun, especially if they like anything Rod Serling wrote or even The Twilight Zone in general.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all the authors – yeah. Uh, pe- people who are doing uh the lectures uh, uh you know, they're all uh you know really good people fun uh, it, it, you know just la- last year was just um uh, it, it was just a, a terrific weekend uh you know are you know, all had had a really good time you know uh you know, there's uh Mike Pfeiffer and his um yeah you know, the rod Serling archive at the bundy museum and you know, last year and uh Serling uh, was there and you know that was real a treat to meet her and you know it's, and she she's just this like uh little you know, Petite lady, and I just introduced myself and um, just having a normal conversation and said something like, Oh, you're, you're, uh, you know, I think your dad ought to be
4: you know,
1: ranked up there with, you know, like Poe, Hawthorne, and Melville was America's greatest authors. You know, I'm just trying to say something. It's how much I'd, Admire her dad, and she's and yeah, she she just told told me it's like, oh, dad would have been you know, just lo- would have loved to hear you say something like that. It, and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I just can't believe, it, yeah, I just heard heard that from you know, Rod's daughter, and it's like, wow, I was, just like, just like really intimidated by her, <laughs> but yeah, she she yeah, that that was a uh, really fond memory of uh, being there and, uh, you know, plan on being being there again. You know, before we're going to have to come over. Do you have any callers yet?
3: No callers yet, but, you know, you're talking about one of my favorite shows, which, is, of course, is Twilight Zone, but but also Car 54, Where Are You? was also one of my favorite shows. As as well as you know, Paladin and and some of the others, and you know, it it's a it's a, you're you're talking about it's kind of like a it, it's it's an archive of history that that so many people unfortunately didn't get a chance to enjoy because I can remember listening to the radio and listening to. Gosh, and Molly and and the Shadow and some of the other. Um, I mean, that's where soap opera started, even on, on radio. And it's a time frame that um, it, it you know they seem simple, and yet they had to they had to have such concise writing to keep everything into a short period of time. And when you when you look at mm. movies and stuff today, and it takes. I don't know, two, three hours to develop a thought or an idea, and they did it in half an hour, and, and not really half an hour because they had commercials they had to, to work around. And the writing was spectacular on so many of these. Just my thought.
2: Oh, yeah, And uh, there's a lot of those that I find uh, very enjoyable. I wouldn't say uh, – 10 years ago I would have said they don't make television shows good anymore, but they've actually upped that quality now, and they've gotten very addicting. But uh, some of the best television is the old television shows, and it's nice to know that there are places like me TV that still air them, and people mm-hmm. – I'm not the only one – that will go through the archives and document shows like Car 54 and Have Gun Will Travel and The Green Hornet and so on. And uh, put together books on the history of those shows and how it all works out. And it looks, it works out good. And apparently a lot of fans, there's enough fans and a fan base out there that authors can keep writing books about them and doing research and keep digging that stuff up.
3: Well, the, the wonderful thing about it is so much of the stuff today becomes politically oriented. And that stuff wasn't. It was pure trauma. It was pure comedy. There was no politics or religion or anything. It was just, it was pure entertainment. And, you know, you're not getting that so much anymore these days. Everybody has a comment.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I've always believed that a social commentary is lacking in today's television shows. Um, Back then you had heroes to aspire. Today we have anti-heroes, you know, the. The, the soccer mom that sells drugs to the school teacher who, makes, who creates meth and sells it all on the street. And they make characters that you actually root for and you don't want to see get busted and in trouble. And it's kind of like a different society these days, which is a bit sad, but I guess that's just the way it works. But to, back then, they were heroes that would, you know, they chose what was morally right and wrong. And so mm-hmm. that's the way I like my shows more so and they don't do that today, sadly.
3: No, I one of my favorite shows was um, You Were There with um was it Edward R. Murrow? I forget who who hosted it. But he took I think it was you, Murrow, yeah. Yeah. He took you back into historical events and you know, you were a reporter talking to people around the assassination of Lincoln or you know any number of things that happened in the past and it was fascinating and it was well done oh yes I, I uh, you
2: are the, you are there they used to play them in school and so the kids could actually witness what looks like a live um newscast where the reporter would go wow. around with a microphone and interview as the historic events occurred and it was a better way to Educate kids and have someone tell them and then hope the kids can remember by teaching it was easier for them to see it via television or a short film,
3: oh yeah, yeah, <clears throat> but I think my favorite two um, twilight zones were um, the one that um, to serve man i i mean I remember I, I yeah. loved that one and and the one with the soda fountain guy who they were talking about aliens and, you know, the guy was saying they didn't exist and the the guy behind the soda fountain was, you know, saying, well, you never know. And then the guy leaves and he takes his hat off and there's a third eye under his hat. I mean, they they did wonderful, wonderful shows. And they were totally entertaining.
2: Yeah, and i always said shows like The Twilight Zone can hold people's attention, but it's also timeless. Um, I remember I was in a Starbucks once and I was talking to somebody and I just happened to mention Twilight Zone and a bunch of the young kids and they're all probably college at best. um, These young kids actually were all thrilled over just knowing that, oh, Twilight Zone, I like Twilight Zone. And I credit that up, chalk that up, not just to how good it is, but also the fact that to this day it is still being aired on television, which is how they got exposed to it, but Even they think Twilight Zone is cool, and they must have because if they got hooked on two or three episodes, they went and watched a whole bunch more. So they knew what that was by name. And so some of these programs, you know, people talk about Game of Thrones being the big deal of this year and so on, but the show went off the air. Let's see if that's still the buzz 20 years from now versus so many other programs that come around. But Twilight Zone will still always be a favorite.
3: Oh, Absolutely. I don't know, but there were yeah, still some it, it, others. that, and, and what, Hopalong Cassidy? How could you forget that? You know, I don't remember any episodes, but I do remember Hopalong Cassidy.
2: Well, that was one of my favorite cowboy actors. But, um, again, that's on the uh, bonus CD that we're giving away. That's on the uh, Judy Canova show from December 24, 1949 means on Christmas Eve live radio he was in the studio playing the role of Hopalong Cassidy to promote the franchise he had just bought historically he had just bought the whole franchise and owned it right before that and was getting ready to have his own radio show on the air so he was trying to heavily keep up the name of uh, Hopalong Cassidy and was producing his own movies at the time and pretty much uh, he was kind of I guess you could say he had no money at the, by that point because he invested every penny he could to make the movies and buy the franchise, and end result is he died a very, very, very wealthy man. It
1: is amazing. <clears throat> yeah, it, it, it's just it, it, really fun. It, it's been been a fun. Uh, 90 minutes so, so far, and, and, and we still have some uh, other material to get into for the next thir- you know, the last 30 minutes. But it, it, yeah, you know, it just it, it, you know, the longevity of, of these, sh- uh, uh, even though they're in, in reruns now, it, it's just that. that Doing something right that has kept a show alive for sixty years or you know, fifty years for star trek uh, yeah there's just that that touchstone element to uh, all these Different radio and TV shows we've spoken about. You know uh, what the shadow was on for uh, over twenty years, but you know I'm sure so many, yeah, yeah, a a large percentage of our listeners knew. You know the um, menacing laugh at the uh, during the intro it it's just those little things that yeah you know, i i hope the listeners picked up on from like you know more from someone like you who's you know researched the like artistic aspects of these shows and you know you've been explaining why they have been around for so long and you know, that connection to the audience uh I just hope that the listeners come away from this show with, with information like that in mind, and ho- hopefully it help them as they do, you know, their writings or artwork or whatever type of uh, humanities in which they are involved. So just i don't know it
2: really wasn't a question it was just kind of a rant no it's a good it's a good rant <laughs> and it's a good opinion too
1: but and um, you know Martin, you're still what working on another popular show yeah i remember watching this one in reruns you know like after after school, I think third or fourth grade, uh, uh, you're working on a book on the Lone Ranger series. Is that is that right? You're starting off with the uh, radio show, and eventually uh, was developed into a TV show.
2: Correct. Yeah. Um, The Lone Ranger was very, um, it was a very popular children's program. It ran more than 20 years on radio, more than 20 years on TV through reruns because it ran five years on TV. Um, That was one of the handful of books that I'd say probably accumulative with my co-author and myself more than 30 years of research and we sat down this winter and hacked out the book and it's going to be about 800 pages and it only covers the first five years of the show. It's titled The Lone Ranger, The Early Years, 1933 to 1937 and the reasoning is that the show, they started recording them in February 1938 so the first five years there's barely any recordings at all that exist and that's what people would listen to, you know, it's what people would love to know in the fans. What about those early adventures? So we document the historic moments, like when Tonto commits a cold-blooded murder, um, when the Lone Ranger basically gets, kicks down a door and guns down a bunch of Mexicans. It was a different rendition of the Ranger back then. And so today we thought it'd be nice to, Document the true creation using re- and we reprint all the archival documents to back up every fact and quote. Um, so all the mis- myths and misconceptions can be debunked. And it's sadly another 800 page book. And like I said, I wish I could write thinner books, but uh, it's <laughs> been a long year, long time in the works, and it's about just about done. It's being proofread by people proofreading books now go through it chapter by chapter and uh, that's about it really so it's uh, just a book about the Lone Ranger but it's an aspect that really has not been documented in most books and when they do they sadly are a little bit mistaken in their facts so hopefully we will get that corrected now
1: okay and speaking of I don't know if it's really Correction. um, I might need it just for my own understanding and
2: uh,
1: uh, clarity. But what does kemosabi mean?
2: Oh, uh, kemosabi means trusted friend. Um, It was referenced a couple times on the radio, especially when it was first used and then repeated over and over. Um, yeah, um, the best part about is the that a real w- is, is. Sorry.
1: Is it a real word? Is that a real word? Um,
2: not really. It's spelled two different ways in the radio scripts because a lot of times they, when words like that, they would spell, they type them in the radio scripts to be phonetically pronounced properly. In other words, it was it'd be sabi. It should be sabay just so that the actors would pronounce it proper during the air. Um but when it's in like say novels, then it would be spelled the other way. Um the beauty of the Lone Ranger is that Franz Stryker was the continuity authority. He wrote most of the scripts, he wrote all the novel most of the novels and so on. And the end result was he was able to maintain a continuity. So when there would be a reference that Tonto was from the Potawatomi tribe, which was up in Michigan at that time. Um, Mm -hmm. It was referenced at least three times during the 22 years it was on the air, but of course always accurately because basically anything continuity was always left to uh, Franz Stryker in case in those later years when other writers came into play and started writing radio scripts and Franz Stryker was story editor it was known that you could not change the lore or do anything like that because that was always up to Stryker. That way it maintained continuity. So Kimo meant trusted friend.
1: Okay, and uh, you you just mentioned the Patawami uh, tribe from Michigan and when we had uh, Lon Krieger on a couple times, he he did uh, speak about... You know, their their contributions to america's hi- history with the garden beds i i i just i uh I'm just while you're going on with this information just kind of make ha- having these you know little realizations about oh wow okay we've uh had someone uh talk about that uh, uh tribe as, as as well i, I uh so Tonto was from the Potawatomi uh, Pot- tribe. He was
2: Potawatomi. Okay, cool. Okay, okay,
1: I I I just remember seeing the uh, show when I was little. I, I'm I, I'm not a scholar of it, but I I remember seeing. I it. It, it, it was a fun show to watch, and you know, you know, more we're down to like. What, about 25 minutes or so um but you know, s- speaking of all, all these fun shows we've been uh discussing uh you know, this evening uh y you, you, know, you also produce these uh classic tv uh, uh c- conventions and uh just due to some circumstances i you know i couldn't get to the Baltimore area with uh, you know, mike and kenny um, but you know what you know you have you know you have these uh conferences with Mary Ann. Uh, Was that last year? And
2: Uh, she was about three years ago, I think.
1: uh, Okay, and yeah, you have a a lot of you know really big, well, you know, Don Don Wells and you know uh, Marianne from Gilligan's Island, but yeah, yeah, you 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 have numerous uh, you know people talking about their. work on these TV shows that all of us grew up watching, and you're doing the same thing again this year. Can you you tell us a little bit about uh, the the conference you're producing this year?
2: Sure. It's a three-day film festival. It's a nonprofit. It helps benefit children with treatable cancer. So what we do is we bring in a bunch of Hollywood celebrities, sometimes TV stars, and basically, it's kind of like a, a film festival, really. We we have movies playing 24 hours a day. We have slideshow seminars from 9 or 9.30 in the morning till about 9 o'clock at night. And then we play a special movie screening. An example would be uh, this year we're playing A Man with a Golden Gun. It's a James Bond film, but both Bond girls from that film is actually going to be at the convention this year. So it seems fitting for them to introduce the movie, you know, talk about being Bond girls and their screen careers before the, we screen the movie. And then another night we have Russ Tamblin and George Takiris, who was um, the leader of the Jets and the Sharks and West Side Story, the musical. So they'll introduce the film and they'll talk about their careers and so on as well. It's kind of like a fun, interactive event. There's a uh, about 200 and some vendors selling old vintage memorabilia. And then of course, as you were mentioning, there's usually about uh, 15, 16 Hollywood celebrities and actors, screenwriters, directors, and so on. And they just sit there and they sign autographs and again raise money for charity. So it's a big event, it's grown. I think last year we hit past 4,000 people. Um, we even have the Baltimore Police wandering around just to make maintain security. It's gotten to be that big, um, and it's a big event, and it's a oh. good event, and it helps for a good cause. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, is there's you have a website for that they want to look into. Uh, uh, the, uh, the the dates and directions uh can can you give us the website for your sure. uh classic is, tv show
2: event yeah it's called the mid atlantic nostalgia convention um basically cuz it's held in the mid atlantic area um the website is easy it's www.midatlanticnostalgiaconvention.com it's the name of the event um they can sign up for the free email newsletter if they want and other cool stuff there they can see the celebrities coming this year they can see photos from past years and so on um the the photos of the vendors and what the merchandise their merchant vendors are selling that really is awesome i mean you can see a lot of cool nostalgia toys and collectibles there um, authors are doing slideshow seminars, so there's a schedule of events there. Some of them are museum curators, film preservationists at the Library of Congress. It, it's a big event. But uh, the website, if they want to check it out, is www.midatlanticnostalgiaconvention.com. And I forgot to mention it is held September 12, 13, and 14 for three days. Um, it's in Hunt Valley, Maryland. And in case anyone's wondering where that is in Maryland, if you were driving down I 83 south of Harrisburg, once you cross into the Maryland state line, the hotel is practically there, so you don't even go into or near uh, Baltimore. In fact, it's a very nice area. The Ravens and Baltimore Orioles players all live pretty much, give or take, around Hunt Valley. So it's um, Hunt Valley, Maryland, September 12, 13, and 14.
1: Okay, and uh, let's see. You, you have Tatum O'Neill there this year. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, that would be interesting to talk to her about. Uh, uh, and she's actually in one of my favorite movies, is uh, you know Paper Moon, and you know, she and her dad Ryan O'Neill uh, are actually. You know, her, her real life dad are actually playing um, yeah you know, you know, the, the these con art, uh, you know con uh con artists that you know ryan's basically her uh dad and she she's a better con artist than her dad and she's what uh, eight years old in the movie it's really uh you know that's a What, that movie was made in like 73 or somewhere or thereabouts?
2: Correct. Um, And she was nine – yeah, she was nine years old when she did the movie, and she won the – I think she's the youngest person to ever win a competitive Academy Award, and it was her best – I think it was her best actress, not even best supporting actress. But I know she holds the record to this day as being the youngest to win a competitive uh, Academy Award
1: it 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 really is an excellent movie and you know you we have looked at you know, really the uh perfection the uh, top quality aspects of you know so so many of these shows and uh paper moon really is another aspect of a, a, an artist like peter bogdanovich paying really close attention to all the uh details of the settings uh to make it really look like uh de- depression era what uh kansas or missouri where the uh Midwest, where the movie's taking place. It's just I I I, I just uh, find the you know story actually is
2: uh, oh yeah, and, and to meet Tatum O'Neill, comp- yeah, to meet Tatum O'Neill will be really really cool because uh, we even talked to her. I think she's bringing her Oscar. So people can actually, if they oh. wear a pair of gloves, can hold an actual original Oscar at the convention. Um, I was surprised she actually said yes, but we've asked celebrities oddball stuff from time to time, like, hey, can you bring the original gun that was used on the show? And they would do it, and you know, sometimes be a complication or two. But um, she's supposedly bringing the original Oscar that she won for Paper Moon, and that'll be pretty awesome, though be able to hold and stand next to her and so on have your photo taken with her but she is one of about 14 or 15 maybe even 16 movie stars coming this year um the big one we looked at is not lee grant or nancy kwan or anyone it's angie dickinson for me because uh she's Mm -hmm. done so many films from john wayne films that probably the only original member of the rat pack still around
1: yeah, and uh, let's see. Nancy Kwan is what well, she, she was from Hawaii Five O. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier in uh, the show. And it, it, uh, what, it, it, what what other what, shows was uh, Angie Dickinson in? Uh, did didn't she do something like with Ko, uh, Kelly Savalas?
2: Um, as you're probably thinking Kojak. She might have made a guest appearance on it. Um, she was the star of police woman for five years on TV, and it was about the t- same time they were doing Kojak and all those other detectives at the time.
1: Yeah, Qu- yeah, that, that, that was like what Qu- Quincy was on. You know, it's like you know, I saw a lot of Quincy uh, and my next door neighbors. House, and you know, he he was a, a doctor. So uh, yeah, I, I so I remember see, seeing that you know, kind of line up, But yeah, and it, what what? Uh, okay, yeah, Barry Williams from the Brady. uh Gre- Greg Brady, correct? Right, and what uh, in the uh, past you have you, had uh who uh, is cindy uh did she uh do uh, her you know reprise her role as doing uh, pork chops and applesauce
2: yeah we've had uh in the past a lot of celebrities uh, robert conrad Robert Wagner. Um, we've had the cast of WKRP in Cincinnati, except Lonnie Anderson. She's coming this year now. Um, we've had uh, practically—I think we had the Bionic reunion with Lee Majors, uh, Richard Anderson, and Lindsay Wagner together. Um, that turned out to be the third time they were ever together since the show went off in '78. Usually, it's one or two of them at a show, not all three. Uh, we just got lucky. And we've had uh, Marsha Hunt, Margaret O'Brien, uh, Celeste Holm, Ann Rutherford, Jodie Foster. Um, we just had a large list of people who just happened to show up, and um, the celebrities come, like I said, to sell autographs and raise a lot of money. Shirley Jones was a very popular one once, um, Davy Jones was there, Karen Valentine. It's it's a nice lineup, but we've had quite a lot of people. Dawn Wells, as you mentioned, who was uh, Mary Ann on Gilligan's Island, she was extremely popular. Line, like a lot of the celebrities, the lines just are nonstop. And I think a couple years ago we had, it was either a couple years ago or last year we had uh, Aileen Quinn. She was Annie in the musical. If you remember the movie Annie, you know it's a hard knock life for me. Um she was there and she had a line that surprised it. We, a lot of us the staff. We have to put the celebrities in certain areas of the hotel where if the lines are going to be so long, they'll go out the door and out the hotel and then people can stand outside at the hotel which is better than having them long lines in the hallways and blocking fire marshal fire exits and making the fire marshal disappointed. And we did not anticipate her having a line that would never end. And we thought, oh, she'll just be—you know—there'll be the occasional family bringing their kids in. And no, that line just never ended. And we went, yeah, I think we got to move her tomorrow because we're okay today, but tomorrow will be even more people. It it has its moments, but it's quite fun, and it's nice to see the event running smoothly with a nicely well-staffed. But we've raised a lot of money for children with treatable cancer, so. The event continues to get bigger and bigger and the best compliment I get is from people who go to other shows who say this is way better than the other shows and they even stop going to the other shows and decide to come just to ours because everything's a notch above and they enjoyed it so that, I, that we figure we have a good recipe we are not going to change any of the ingredients
1: <laughs>
2: you know and, and ew, is there a
1: certain theme you're developing with uh, Britt Eklund and Maude Adams, as you know, some of the uh, you know a couple of the Bond girls. Is there is there something there that yeah you know, you're developing?
2: Um, not for this year, no. Uh usually if there's a theme it's some sort of anniversary in other words this year we're kind of highlighting a a 70th anniversary of dragnet yeah i think it's 70th anniversary of dragnet 50th anniversary of woodstock um we highlight a type of movie each year last year we played a few film noir this year we're highlighting old dark house murder mysteries so people who like old Dark House murder mysteries can enjoy the that genre because we're going to play a few rare oddballs of that uh, genre. Next year I think we're going to probably focus on some westerns because people seem to like westerns. Um, it's it's a little bit – for the Bond girls, it's because um, both of them – we always have a Bond girl or two every year just because there's a large group of people – who come every year because they like Bond girls, so as long as we keep bringing in a couple Bond girls, there's this large group of guys who keep coming in over and over, and uh, both of them just happen to be the stars of The Man with the Golden Gun, because there was always two Bond girls, per se, in each Bond movie. One would be good, and one would be bad, so um in this case we've got the good girl and the bad girl so they'll introduce the film and talk about their careers before we screen it up on a big giant screen which is fun because then people can get their autograph with them get a poster from that movie signed they can get glossy photos which are there um the photos are glossy photos are free some people want their photos taken but like i said it's all for raising money for charity and it's a good cause so it's a it's it's a fun it's a great way to have fun and also do something good at the same time.
1: It, it is, uh, uh, you know, Br- Brit was in uh, the Wicker Man. Is she going to talk about her, her role in that movie? You know, that, that that's like, uh, you know, so, so, since we've been ho- highly praising um psycho on like <laughs> uh, you know the, the the original wicker man uh is a close second to uh yeah you know, like s- psycho and uh scary movies it is do you, you know she's planning on discussing uh, oh yeah she the will. wicker man oh
2: well wow. yes um and basically uh, what happens is uh, whoever's in charge of doing the interviews will ask questions for about, you know, about 20 minutes, usually about the main questions. And that was one of her big ones. And if he doesn't, it, it makes it easy because uh, then they turn questions over to the audience for about 20 minutes. And the stars try to give good answers, but they try not to give very long answers so they can get as many questions answered by the fans. Not that the fans cannot walk up to the table and just ask a question. and They don't have to get autographs. They can ask questions. That's what the stars are there for. Um, but I'm sure if she does not get to talking about it on stage, anyone can ask her about the Wicker Man. But I'm pretty certain someone's going to bring it up if it hasn't been, if it's not brought up beforehand. Um, but that's part of the fun is, like I said, the interaction where the fans can actually ask the celebrities questions.
1: Well, that sounds interesting. Okay, so you have the long-awaited appearance of Lonnie Anderson from WKRP in Cincinnati. There, um, what you, you finally got got her there. What uh, what are you anticipating? From Lonnie.
2: Um, From Lonnie, just a nice Q and A. She'll be uh, signing autographs, answering questions, posing for photos with the fans. That fans can, uh, you know, they'll share on Facebook and all those. If you've ever seen photos with people and celebrities and wondered where they got the photos, a lot of times it's at conventions like these. And uh, we had, I think. Let's see. We had Tim Reed, Howard Hessman, and Jan Smithers last year. Uh, Lonnie Anderson was supposed to come to make it a nice cast reunion, but the problem was uh, Burt Reynolds had passed away, and she had to be there for the funeral and all. She had to stay, and it was Mm -hmm. just bad. It it was timing. So she said, no, I'll make it the next year. And granted, we don't have the other three at the same weekend, but – On the plus side, anyone who got a – let's say they got a photo and they got a cast photo and they got them signed by all three, they can bring the photo back, and now Lonnie Anderson will sign it. They can keep gathering their photos, or they can just meet her. I would imagine most people wanted to meet her before any of the others all combined because there were so many people who showed up and then discovered, oh, she canceled. Well, that makes sense. Some people actually anticipated it because uh, when they heard the Burt Reynolds passed away, but – it happens. It's sadly, but they can check out the website and see all the celebrities coming this year because I know I'm missing some. Uh, uh, it's W. Uh, Richard Thomas. Yep. You know,
1: from, from the Waltons. Okay, and uh, you know we're down to three minutes or so. Uh, what are all the websites again? Uh, I guess we didn't have any callers for the – a uh, trivia question, but um, you, know, uh, you, you know, Martin, w- what's your you know personal website and the uh, 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 cl- classic TV website?
2: Sure, it's uh, th- my website is martingrams.com. Um, they can Google that if they can't find it. In case they're not getting my name spelled, it's a little tricky. It's G-R-A-M-S, like the weight. Um, That's my website, martingrams.com, and the other one is the convention website, www.midatlanticnostalgiaconvention.com, and they'll give them – those websites will give them a little bit of everything that they want to look at, samples from the books, dates, free emails and blogs, and lots of fun stuff to check out, so plenty of things to read and see and do on the sites.
1: Okay. Hey, um, Barbara, I know we're down to about two minutes. Uh, do you uh, uh, w- want to wrap up the sh- show? Uh, provides your benediction before we and hey and oh, I just uh, hey uh, we'll be uh, on tomorrow afternoon from four to six p.m. Eastern with a special show. But, uh, uh, Barbara, okay, go go ahead, Barbara, wrap it up.
3: Okay. I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. I hope you've had as much fun as I have listening. I even took some notes, and I'm going to check out the website. Um, Absolutely, again, I I browsed through it a little bit um, earlier today, and it's a fascinating website. You, You will get lost in it and so will your memory get lost in in, in the times that we've lived through. Um, We do have another show uh, tomorrow, and uh, again, next week, Monday and Tuesday. Please check in with us. If you check my website, you'll see when the shows are, and um, you'll be able to join us there, or you'll be able to join us on YouTube. That said, thanks a lot for being here and listening and sharing your evening with us. We'll see you all soon. Good night.